Today's scripture reading is from Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 through 6. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, Visiting, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The grass withers, the flowers, flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Good afternoon. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic. We're so glad to see everyone here uh, on Sunday service here joining us today, especially if you're joining us for the first time Really glad that you're here. Uh, like was mentioned during the time of the announcements, we did embark on a new sermon series called The Ten Commandments. And again, I want to remind us that we are calling it The Ten Commandments. Uh, we don't want to hide behind some cleverly devised title to hide from the truth that we have divine directives from God outlining for us how he wants his people to live. And I know that uh, that is not very appealing, probably in the context of our city today, uh, because these are rules, these are regulations, these are laws telling us how to live, what to do, what not to do. Um, but it's important to have the perspective that our God is a father, a father who's laid out these house rules for us so that his people could be in the very best shape together as a people as they can. And so we continue this week uh, heading into the second commandment, and it's all about proper worship. If the first commandment was all about our worship, that we need to worship, and that it needs to be characterized by a soul devotion, the second commandment is all about how we should worship. That we worship is intrinsically tied to how we should worship meaning that for the Christian, the means and the goals, which is for worship, have to be lock in step. And so this commandment teaches us how not to worship, how to worship, and then how to continue in that worship. How not to worship, which is the prohibitive side of the commandment. How to worship, which is the prescriptive side of this commandment. And then how to continue in that worship, which is the posterity of our worship. Let's uh, begin here with the prohibitions or how not to worship. Uh, it's very clear and explicit what the, the prohibitions of the second commandment is. Uh, it says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, which is something very specific. It says that, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, which is kind of a general principle for us. And then it says, no bowing to them. And that word bowing in Hebrew can be rendered to mean pray or plead to. And then it says, no serving them, uh, which can be rendered, again, that Hebrew word can be rendered working for or offering to them. So again, no carved idols or statues, specific. General principle, and, and for that matter, you can't make anything in, in, in the likeness of anything that you see in creation. Uh, which is general, no praying to them, no pleading to them, and no giving to them, no offering to them. Those are the prohibitions. So you'll remember with me in Exodus 32, 
when Israel fashions those golden calves to worship, uh, they're clearly breaking the second commandment. They have that carved idol, right, and they're worshiping. Uh, They are in violation of the second commandment. But notice what actually they say in that episode. And you'll find that Exodus 32, uh, verse 4. They said this, This is our God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of Egypt. Uh, What we find is that in them saying that, that they're actually not trying to reject God at all. They're not trying to worship other gods. They're actually trying to worship the one who's brought them out of the land of Egypt. They're trying to worship Lord, the Lord God, but they did it through the use of golden calves. And so this, again, this commandment teaches us that we need to worship, but it teaches us how to worship. So why were the Israelites, even though they were worshiping God, still in violation of the second commandment? Well, as one commentator describes it, uh, he says this, the idea of taking a calf arose from pagan idolatry. Baal was worshipped in the form of a bull, a symbol of power, but that pagan notion was used in this case to make an image of Yahweh. The Israelites were not intending to reject the Lord and go serve other gods, but they merely wanted to have Yahweh among them in a particular way. So what we find is Israel trying to conduct a worship service, a public worship service, but according to their own cultural assumptions and cultural artifacts. Because you see, Israel was used to worshiping many gods through physical idols. And the ritual went something like this. Uh, You would build a carved statue of a god of your choosing, whom you wanted to worship, You perform some kind of an incantation ritual to activate the divine presence in the idol, as if you could. Then you placed it wherever it was convenient for you, in a corner of a living room or behind the barn or somewhere in your property. You'd most likely build a shrine so that you can decide its dwelling place. And when you needed something, you went, and when you needed something, you went to it to pray to it, to plead your case to it, to offer it food, and you hoped that that God would bless you. So you see, Israel is trying to worship God, but according to their own cultural assumptions, according to their own cultural artifacts, according to their own cultural images. And this is exactly what God prohibits. Uh, Because when we are left to decide for ourselves, from culture and things in creation, how to worship, we inevitably end up worshiping God after our own image rather than worshiping God as image bearers of God. And so a worship of a God after our own image is really nothing more than really worshiping ourselves because we've made the thing into our own image. We're worshiping ourselves. But the explicit commandment is don't make any carved images or carved idols. So how does specifically the carved idols foster the worship of self? Well, graven images are forbidden in this commandment because it risks reducing God to an image of creation. And God is not an image of creation. He's the creator, the uncreated one. 
It's a reductionism that can wrongly communicate or even typecast, literally, because it's an idol, or caricaturize the eternal, infinite, and divine nature and attributes of God. See, God is so many things, but if we're going to try to quantify God in some one concrete object, we'll inevitably end up bracketing out so much of what God is for our perspective or our convenience or for our narrative rather than receiving God as he is. All of us will know Russell Brand, ex-husband of Katy Perry, eccentric comedian and actor. Well, he was interviewed by Jeremy Paxman, who's a British journalman, uh, journalist, um, about his celebrity, about how he came to fame. And uh, uh, Paxman asks Brand, so what are the good things about being famous? What are the bad things about being famous? And pertaining to the bad things about being famous, this is what Russell Brand said. And you'll find the quote in uh, the beginning of your bulletin. He said this, There is an extracted icon of me that is used to splash across newspapers and represent what is convenient for their narrative ideas. You see, Brand is frustrated with the fact that he's famous, but he's famous in the way that people have portrayed him in the media. And so Brand says, that's not all of who I am. I'm kind of being typecasted and caricaturized uh, to fit the convenience or the narrative of other people's perspective. And likewise, God says the same in this commandment. Don't make carved idols or images of me because you'll inevitably reduce me to some caricature or some typecast uh, according to your own images or uh, in a way that's going to fit your conveniences. Because the truth is we can't contain him in some literal typecast or a carved image. We can't quantify God without reducing him. God is too big. He's too vast, uh, wonderfully deep that he cannot and will not be reduced or contained. And this is exactly what Jonathan Edwards is talking about in his famous uh, sermon called The Excellencies of Christ. And you'll also find that quote in your bulletin uh, in the beginning there. And he says this, There is in him a conjunction of such really diverse excellencies as otherwise would have seemed us utterly incompatible in the same subject. There do meet in Jesus Christ infinite highness and infinite condescension, infinite justice and infinite grace, infinite glory and lowest humility, infinite majesty and transcendent meekness, an exceeding spirit of obedience with supreme dominion over heaven and earth, absolute sovereignty and perfect resignation. Here is strong foundation an inexhaustible treasure to answer the necessities of your soul. Edwards is pointing to the fact that in God we have this inexhaustible treasure with all these amazing, amazing traits and attributes. God is infinite highness, but he's infinite condescension. He's justice, but he's also grace. He's glory, but he's humility. All these traits of God are being found in God himself. So how could we uh, quantify that into one carved image? 
we couldn't. And so you see, if the first commandment opposed foreign gods, the second opposes self-willed worship of God. Well, that's how not to worship. So how should we worship? That's the prescriptive side of the commandment. What does God, how does God tell us that we ought to worship? Well, you see, God is invisible. He's eternal. He's spirit, which means he doesn't have bodily form. And this commandment forbids us, because of that, from quantifying God in some concrete way or object. But that doesn't help us, this prohibition, or this, that prohibition, because we need to see God, right? We need a way to picture God or imagine God or perceive God or sense God so that we can actually worship him. Because unless you first see God, you can't worship God. You can't appreciate God. You can't find him worthy of your praises if you have no experience of God. Uh, but nothing created, as we established, is adequate to capture all of who God is. So what image can represent God perfectly so that we can experience God? Well, on this front, God does not leave a short change. The answer is God quantifies himself, and he did so in the person of Jesus, the Son of God, who is God in flesh. You remember with me in Colossians 1.15 where it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus, God incarnate, becomes the physical image of God as God through whom we can worship. The only adequate, uncreated one who shares equality with the divine nature and attributes. So that when you see God, you really are seeing the face of God. There's a song I like. It's called Mary Did You Know? And probably I've searched far and wide in the land of YouTube. And the best cover out there is done by Pentatonix. Pentatonix does a cover of Mary Did You Know? And um, it's just absolutely brilliant. It kind of sends me to a, a, a land not our own. It's absolutely transcendent. But one of the uh, lines of the song um, says, Mary, did you know that when you kiss your little baby, you kiss the face of God? That's amazing. Another lyric in that song is, this child that you delivered will soon deliver you. Shivers, chills, right? Uh, when we see Jesus in, and for Mary, when, G, when Mary saw Jesus, she saw the tenderness and the vulnerability of a babe. But we know in faith from the scriptures that while Mary saw uh, the tenderness of a babe, maybe or maybe not, she knew that she was actually staring at the sovereign, majestic God of all the universe. When we see Jesus, we see the fullness of the deity, all of his diverse excellencies coming rushing in in the one person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that was all for our deliverance. And most climactically, we saw this on the cross 
where we see, saw the weakness and the vulnerability of a Savior. But he was a Savior, holy and majestic from all of eternity. We saw glory and suffering meet in one place, and that was the cross. We saw the sacrificial lamb of God, but also the lion of Judah, mighty and powerful to save. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and it's in him and only him that we find and see and experience God for all of who he is. And you'll see why now God says no carved images because what I want you to see rather than a image from creation is that I want you to see the uncreator, uncreated creator himself face to face. That's all good and well. But Jesus isn't with us today. So we can't actually see Jesus, right? He's in heaven, he's, he's ascended to heaven, and we're waiting for his return. Um, so what now? Because we still need to experience God. We need to worship him properly, but how can we do that unless we can't see him? Well, Jesus offers help, and he offers help in the way of an image that he does sanction from creation. And those are the images or the elements of the two sacraments that we observe in the church. That's baptism, the water, and communion, the bread and the cup. In the scriptures, water represents new life. And as it pertains to our baptism, it symbolizes the death that we died to Christ in sin and that we were raised back up to life in the newness of life. And so the idea is that when you're dunked into the water... You are dying to your sins, and then when you come plunging right out of the water, just the same way that you plunged into it, uh, you're being raised onto new life. And that's an image that Jesus gives us. Remember me when you remember water in your baptism, that you died to your sins and you're raised to my, in my resurrection life. And then, of course, communion, the bread and the cup. The bread symbolizing his broken body for you on the cross and the cup symbolizing his blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Those are the images that we look on uh, at our church on a monthly basis uh, for the communion. Um, and we're meant to remember God. We're meant to remember the face of Jesus. Furthermore, the Bible regulates for us elements of public worship. There's a way that God wants us to worship. He gives us guidelines for doing it. Uh, and it includes reading and preaching of the Bible, just like now. Singing of psalms from the Bible, meaning that the lyrics that we sing during praise should be lyrics and content from the Bible itself. That we don't take liberty in the kinds of themes that we introduce into our praise, but that we look to the Bible for its content and its shape. Uh, of course, prayer and Presbyterians, we like pray after everything and before everything. Uh, there are, of course, the sacraments, and on occasion, uh, we practice oaths, vows, like in the case of weddings, and of course, we offer to God uh, with our offerings week to week. Now, I know how this might seem, guidelines, it's so mechanical, it's so routine, 
and maybe you've had particular issues with even our liturgy at Sunday service here at Exilic, where it's stand up, sit back down, recite this together. What do you believe? There, it seems too mechanical. And growing up as a Presbyterian, I always had questions about that. Why do you make your people sit and stand and recite things? And it's just a little bit robotic. Um, but actually, it's not robotic. These are guidelines that actually help us to know that we're free to worship God. That's right. These guidelines speak to and point to the actual freedom that we have in Christ to worship. Uh, Will McDavid, in his piece called The Engineering Worship and Liturgies of Control, uh, wrote this. At its best, liturgy, which is a fancy religious word for form of worship, Liturgy is, is a received form of worship. The human heart excels at taking divine gifts and turning them into tools to be crafted by us and used on others. We cannot engineer our encounters with God however much we may want to. The grace of God's presence, of course, is unchanging, shining forth independent of our religious machinations. The freedom in Christ to be spiritual recipients could allow us to recognize it more clearly. It's a freedom that we experience when we follow the guidelines that God has given for his worship. And let me give us a picture of this. Uh, eagles are different from every other bird in this way. Whereas birds fly... Eagle soar. And if you've ever seen an eagle soar, it's just absolute beauty. It's ravishing. Other birds fly, or some of them can't even fly. But eagles, they soar high in the sky. Uh, but there's something that allows them to do that. And it's not just their wingspan or their power or whatever, but it's actually they're, they're using something that's physical. They're using, actually, the thermal layers in the sky. And so different pressures, different temperatures of the air create these thermal layers, and the eagles guess where they fly. They fly in the thermal layers themselves because it's in that seam that they experience the lift to what, though? To experience the design for which it was created, to soar. Likewise, when God gives us the guidelines of the law, he's not trying to cramp our freedom because you can never say that an eagle is not free when it's soaring. It absolutely is free. But it's in the guidelines that God provides for us in his law that we're really able to experience the freedom for which we were created for. I want to end with a couple of points of applications, and it is the third point. So, how should we then continue in this worship in the freedom for which we were created? Well, a couple of things for us to think on before we close our time. Uh, it's time for spring cleaning for some of us. Uh, clean out our closets and our homes. If we own those Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts, that's, that's an image of Christ. Um, and it reduces God. And so consider chucking it. 
Or if there are graven images of, of Jesus in your home in the way of portraits or pictures or in, or in the way of praying cards, uh, those are graven images and it inevitably reduces God. It caricaturizes God. So consider getting rid of those things in your home so that you can purify the worship that God requires of you. But maybe more pressing, uh, properly worshiping God today is important for the posterity of our worship tomorrow. Meaning that our present worship dictates the posterity of our worship. You know, in this commandment, explicitly we're told about the prohibitions, but there is this kind of attachment to the law that we find. Um, And we formally call it the annex, but this is what it says. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. How we worship today will affect the way our children will worship um, and their relationship with God tomorrow. Now, I want, this is very important for us, and I say this realizing, of course, the, the general makeup of exilic congregation, that many of us are singles without children. Uh, we have single people, we have married people, we have married people with children, but I want to say that this, this annex pertains to all of us because I want us to think about it this way. We are the posterity of worship in the church. There were people who came before us who worshiped God. And we are somewhere in that line of the posterity of worship. And so at one point, whether you were 10 years old or 20 years old, 30 years old, 40 or 50, at any point in time, you are somewhere in that line of posterity. And then specifically for us, the way that we can apply this is we know we have younger brothers and sisters in the faith who we need to exemplify our worship better for. Because it all affects this posterity of worship in the church. And that's, and, and that's so important because God deserves our praises. I love it that we sang today. Enthroned upon the praises of a thousand generations. And we stand in that line of posterity for God's worship for a thousand generations. What a glorious vision of what God has in mind for his church. May Exilic join in the praises of the enthroned one for a thousand generations and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you teach us how to worship. And indeed, may you be enthroned in the praises of a thousand generations forever and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.